Good morning. Chris, you may be seated. So, sorry, just playing with my friend up there. All right, it's good to be with you guys. It's hot. I think I'm pitting, so you guys just sorry if I look gross. It's been kind of a, one of those weeks that ends, that, so a little heat is magnified by just the general anticipation of the week ahead with VBS. But we are super excited, and it's great to be with you this morning. We are continuing this morning in our series, Elijah and Elisha. Today we talk about the succession of, uh, of the prophetic power from um, Elijah to Elisha. And I promise you that I will confuse Elijah and Elisha at some point, and I'll probably throw in a Joshua or a Jeremiah. I just just been a mess in my brain this week. But we're talking about really a succession plan. And if I read the Wall Street Journal, and it seems like every week there is another story about either a failed or a successful succession of CEOs from one company to another. If you Google succession of CEOs, you'll find, I found like 500,000 different responses that either talk about good or bad transitions or talk about how to have a good transition in CEOs of succession. The same thing holds true these days for for a lot of pastors. A lot of churches talk about a succession plan. There's a lot of angst when leadership changes. Um, There's a lot of uh, concern that goes into that. And I think it's especially true today when we have uh, social media, we have this celebrity that is around these leaders of countries, back, um, leaders of companies and churches. Back in the day, you just didn't know who the CEO of a company was. It wasn't that big a deal. How many of you know who this guy is on the screen? I, I picked an image with the apple in case you guys needed a hint. <laughs> so, so I remember when he passed away and there was all this thought, would Apple be the same without him? Would it go on? He was such a charismatic visionary. And we, we think about that a lot. We think about that in the context of the secular world, but also in the context of the church world. And today we're talking about a succession from Elijah to Elisha. And we see in that um, really what the power for leadership is, what the power for confirmation of a leader is, what the power for protection of a leader is. We see that as for ourselves as leaders, which we all are. We see that for ourselves as followers, which we all are. So we're going to be in 2 Kings today. Let me pray and let's jump in. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for a beautiful, warm morning. God, we are grateful that we have the freedom today to come into this place and to open your word. God, in what is a decidedly odd passage, God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. I pray that that we wouldn't get lost in it. We wouldn't get lost in the supernaturalness of it. But God, that in that, we would see more of you. God, I pray as we discuss this transition of power from Elijah to Elisha, God, I pray we would um, make much of you. I pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified by by what happens in this place today. I pray that you would be pleased by what is said. And I pray that you would guard and protect the words of my mouth and that they would reflect your heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we will be in 2 Kings. We're transitioning. Ryan has been the last few weeks in 1 Kings. 2 Kings, guess what? Comes right after 1 Kings. So if you know where that is, you're fine. It's kind of in the front end of the Old Testament. If you see a Judges or Ruth or the Samuels, then keep going to the right. If you get to the Chronicles, then head back to the left, and you'll find 2 Kings. We're going to be in 2 Kings 2. We're going to spend a lot of time reading the passage today. So take the time to turn there. Um, 
this is really a weird chapter. Maybe when my kids tell me I'm weird, I say I prefer quirky. So maybe this is a quirky chapter. It just is. We have chariots of fire. We have a whirlwind that takes Elijah up to heaven. We have the parting of the Jordan River twice. We have a miraculous healing of a water supply. And we have a couple of she-bears that come out of the woods and maul a group of young thugs. It's a very quirky chapter. But I love this kind of chapter because this is the sort of thing that reminds us of the otherness of God. So sometimes we, we, really, we really fight the supernatural side of God. We fight the, the fact that he's not like us. That he doesn't live within the boundaries that we live in. That he doesn't always do things to think that we, the way we think he should or the way that we would. And I promise you, that's good. To highlight and to accept and to revel in God's otherness is good. I promise you, you do not want a God that fits in a box that looks like me. And I don't want a God that fits in a box that looks like you. We need the otherness of God. So we're going to read this together. We're going to take our time, like I said. Because in this, I think we see a lot about Elisha and Elijah. We see some things for ourselves. But what I really think and what we want to highlight today is what this passage shows us about God. So let's read this together. We're going to start in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel, the sons of the prophets means the remnant of the faithful. You remember we've been studying about how Israel had drifted away under Ahab and Jezebel into this place where they were not worshiping the one true God. They were worshiping multiple Baals. And this, is, this means the sons of the prophets, this is the remnant of the faithful to God and to who he was. The remnant of the faithful in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he, Elisha, said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. So as we jump in here, if you were here last week, Ryan preached through 1 Kings 19. And in 1 Kings 19, God tells Elijah to anoint Elisha to be his successor. So Elisha knows that this is coming. He has been anointed as his successor. Apparently, we see from this, everybody knows this is coming. And this is probably, there's some tension that you can just feel in that passage. Elijah was very important to them. His favor with God, his his, um, steadfastness, his... um, The way he stood for them, for this remnant of the faithful, and stood for God was probably very comforting to these people. There was some anxiety that he was about to leave. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning. Go on to verse 4. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets, the remnant of the faithful, who were at Jericho, drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, You can fill in the blanks, I bet. 
As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. I always imagine those 50 just sort of huddling behind trees, trying to be inconspicuous, but they're watching. They want to see what happens. What's amazing here is that Elijah knows that he is about, Elisha knows that he is about to become the successor to Elijah, but he's not sitting back just waiting for this to happen. He's not organizing his cabinet or his leadership team. He is following his mentor. He is sticking by his side to the very end. Elijah gives him several opportunities to bail out. He tests his devotion, but Elisha sticks with him. Then verse 8, then Elijah took his cloak. That word cloak, um, it also is translated mantle. So sometimes we talk about a figurative mantle today, as in somebody has a mantle of leadership. In that time, it was a physical piece of clothing that designated Elijah as the prophet. It says, Elijah took his cloak, his mantle, and he rolled it up and he struck the water. He didn't need a big old staff. He took his robe and he struck the water and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. So Elisha has not fallen away from Elijah. He has stayed with him to the end. And we see here as they cross the Jordan that that results in in Elijah just sort of giving him this carte blanche blanche request or offer. You can have whatever you need. What do you need from me as I'm about to leave you? If he had not stayed with him, he would not have had that opportunity to request that of Elijah. And then Elisha, when he says, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me, he's not really asking for twice as much. That's a reference to the inheritance laws in Deuteronomy, where the firstborn son received a double portion of inheritance. So Elisha is basically saying, treat me as as your firstborn in this prophetic ministry. He, he knows that he has been designated as the successor prophet. But what he is saying here is really, I need and I'm asking for the firstborn share of the spiritual power to fulfill this calling that you've given me. And then Elijah tests him one more time to see if he will go the full distance. If you stay with me, essentially, until you see me taken from you, you will have what you ask for. And then verse 11, as they still went on and talked, just chatting along the road, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. Chariots of fire. Now, when I hear chariots of fire, I always think of this. Slow motion on the beach. That's not the chariots of fire. This is the chariots of fire. Okay, that's not the chariots of fire either. Do we wonder why we treat all these things as some sort of cosmic fairy tale when this is the image that we find of this? Look, they're waving to each other. 
I don't know what this looked like, but I guarantee you it didn't look like that. The chariots of fire separated Elijah and Elisha. Okay, so it doesn't say that he went up even in a chariot of fire. It says he separated them and then a whirlwind took him up. It was an amazing scene. And then when Elijah says, uh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, that, that is all, those are military terms. He is acknowledging at that moment that the true safety of Israel lies in the power of God. It wasn't Elijah that had the power. It was the God. It was God, the one true God who had the power. And it was God who held the safety of Israel in his hands. Elisha is blown away by this scene and rightfully so. And then it says he takes his own clothes and he tore them into two pieces. He, Elisha wasn't like, finally, I'm the guy. He, he mourned. That's a, those are, that tearing of his clothes is significant mourning on his part, sadness, and probably just a little fear. And then verse 13, he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood at the bank of Jordan. He took up the mantle. He made a decision at that point. God didn't just put the mantle on him. Elisha had to decide, I will carry this. I will take this. And it wasn't an easy decision. Elijah's ministry had a lot of prestige. It had a lot of respect. He had a lot of influence. It was an important role, but it was also one of great pressure and great responsibility. But he made a decision at this point, I will accept the mantle. He took up the cloak, the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Verse 14, then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. I love this. His, he walks there with the cloak. He has accepted the mantle of leadership. And he acknowledges right off the bat in this phrase, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He knows at that moment that the power for his prophetic ministry does not rest in the mantle itself. It doesn't rest in fiery chariots. It rests in the presence and the work of the living God. And he summons the power of God in that moment. What an amazing picture of, of the thing that every one of us who ever undertakes any leadership, and we all are leaders, we're going to talk about that in a minute. That is the first thing that we should ask when we undertake a mantle of leadership. And very often, I'm not sure we ask it at all. Elisha knew that if God had called him to this same prophetic ministry, that he would need the power that Elijah had to carry it out. And he asked for it first, and God gives it and the waters part. I love this little section, just real quick little interlude here before we keep reading. The, uh, I'm, I'm someone who's a super preparer. I want to, I want to make sure and cover every possible bad outcome. I'm a very big planner. I want to know exactly how things are going to turn out. And I was really struck by how Elisha just immediately steps up, picks up the mantle and goes to this river and summons God instantly I was reading um, some things about this, and I saw this from Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, an old Baptist pastor who, who wrote this, um, and I thought it was so powerful. He, he wrote this about this section. He said this quote. It should be on the screen. And when you have got their mantle, do not waste precious time in lamentations about them anymore. For me, I read that. Don't waste precious time in planning anymore. 
get to your business. There is a river in your way, what then? Well, go to the Jordan as the prophet Elisha did and try to pass it. Say not, where is Elijah? But where is the Lord God of Elijah? Elijah is gone, but his God is not. Elijah has gone away, but Jehovah is present still. I love this picture. Verse 15. He's, Elijah, Elisha has gone over the Jordan that has parted in God's power. In verse 15, now when the sons of the prophets, the remnant of the faithful, who were at Jericho, saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. They saw it. They saw evidence of God's power on him. They saw evidence of God's spirit on him. Elisha didn't have to walk up and say, now you guys know I'm the guy now. I'm in charge. He didn't have to he didn't have to work to get authority. They saw it in him. And they came to meet him and they bowed on the ground before him. Verse 16. And they said to him, behold, now there are with your servants, 50 strong men with your servants, 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley like the whirlwind picked him up and then dropped him in the mountains. And he, Elisha, said, you shall not send. He said, no. Verse 17, but when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. So they, they, they got under him and he finally said, okay, fine, go. They sent, therefore, 50 men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, mm-hmm. I added that part. Did they not say to you, did I not say to you, do not go? So they trusted the God's power on him. They still tested his wisdom. And at this point, God's power in him and God's wisdom in him is revealed. Now, verse 19, the men of the city said to Elisha. So they've just, all this has just happened. The men of the city say to the, said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad. And the land is unfruitful. They said, we have a nice place to live. They have terrible water. Which is ironic that we have Stonegate here from Midland, Texas. Where I came from. A very nice place to live with terrible water. It took me a year after moving here to realize I could safely drink from a faucet or a water fountain. Now, Midland's water is not dangerous. It makes your teeth brown and it tastes like sulfur. But it's not dangerous. But the water in Jericho was dangerous, like, like Flint, Michigan kind of water. It was causing damage in people's lives. And so they say, we have a nice place, but the water's bad. Elisha says, bring me, this is verse 20, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elijah, Elisha, where am I? Uh, that Elisha spoke. Now this is, this is interesting because I think we so often can look at this as something that Elisha did. But what, he, what he's saying is he didn't do this miracle to prove himself. He didn't do it because he thought it was a good idea. He acknowledges in his statement, thus says the Lord, he acknowledges the source of the power to heal this water supply. When he says, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. 
From now on, there shall neither, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. It wasn't his work. It wasn't something he did. This was the work of the Lord, and it was a word from the Lord that announced the healing of this water. He is at this moment realizing, I only do what the Lord empowers me to do. And then verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel. So he's made a round trip. If you've been paying attention to the geography of this chapter, he went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going out on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel. From there, he returned to Samaria. If I could have sick some mama bears on everybody that's made fun of this bad boy. (laughs) Peter, one time when he was little, I was sitting at a table and he came up behind me and he started playing with my bald spot. And he said, Daddy, you have a hole in your hair. (laughs) Should have sicked a bear on you, boy. So this is a super odd passage. It, It just really is. But... A couple of things that we want to note about this. It says little boys. It's not a great translation because what that really means in the Hebrew is is young man. And it's young in a a very broad sense. Joseph was described using the same word um, in another place in the Bible when he was 39 years old. Solomon was described using that same uh, word when he was 20 years old. So this isn't what it sounds like. It wasn't just silly kids making fun of him. It was a mob that had come out of Bethel and they sought him out. Bethel, if you will remember... I think we've discussed it in the last two weeks, was the chief center of pagan calf worship. This mob that came out to taunt him was a picture of the continuing opposition. Things had not changed much. Continuing opposition to God. God, opposition to God via his prophets. They say, go up, you bald head. That makes, that sounds silly to us. So it's mocking Elisha. Apparently he was bald, prematurely bald probably because he was not an old man. Um, I understand his pain, uh, follically challenged in the room, will agree with me. He was apparently bald, but they wasn't just making fun of him for being bald. Go up, you bald head, was tying him with the prophet Elijah. When they said, go up, you bald head, it was, it was almost a threat. Like maybe you should die too, even though they, they just knew that Elijah had disappeared. Not that he hadn't died. It was a threat. You, why don't you go on up too, bald head? This was not a friendly, silly mob or group of boys. It was a mob. It's 42 out of this group were attacked by these bears. It was a big group. It could very well be that the Lord had to intervene to protect Elisha at this time. He intervenes to protect him physically. And at the same time, at the same way, he defends his own name. These men, it doesn't say they were killed. They were mauled. It probably just disbanded this mob mentality. So that Elisha could go on and go about his business. So do you agree with me that this is a quirky story? There's a lot in this. But I love this general idea that the Old Testament, these narratives of the Old Testament, they serve a purpose of God revealing things about himself to us from God to tell us about God. And I think there are things that we can see in here and we can emulate in Elijah and Elisha. But we have to remember that Elijah and Elisha were there to show the people of Israel the reality of the one true God. 
And we have made an effort as we've told these stories and we've read these other narratives to look at the ways that God reveals himself to us through this amazing time in the history of Israel with Elijah and Elisha. I see this chapter as primarily about God and leadership and really about God's power in leadership. These three things jumped out at me. Number one, it is God's power that makes you, it is God's power that makes the leader. So I'm talking primarily kind of in a Christian leadership sense. And the reality is everyone in this room who's a Christian is called to lead in whatever place God places you. It's why we are working to reframe our volunteers as servant leaders. We are all called to lead. And there are two sides in this because I think we have to look about how we lead in the ways that God has called us, but also how we follow. There is a great tendency in, I think, most of us to follow a person. This is why um, many uh, churches that have very strong, charismatic pastors struggle when that pastor leaves. It's also why pastors can have such an uncanny ability, a, a scary ability to lead people astray, to sway people away from the truth because we tend to follow a person. And I know for me, everything in me, I, I, I love, I want to follow a strong leader, but I have to be careful that I follow the presence of God in a leader rather than the leader himself. It is God's power that makes a leader. Many times as, as we struggle to lead in the ways that God has called us, we struggle either in two ways. We think too highly of ourselves Or we think too little of ourselves. We bank too much in our natural talents and gifts. Or we focus on our weaknesses and our struggles in leadership. Uh, I know I I see so many more of my flaws. And sometimes when I see my flaws in leadership, it can shut me down. But I also can have pride. And if you have pride and arrogance in your leaders. Or you see fear and passivity in your leaders then that is a sign that that leader has forgotten the source of his leadership power, and that is God's power resting on him. God calls us, and then he does the work through us. I love 1 Thessalonians 5.24. It says, faithful is he who calls you, he will surely do it. It is the realization that God supplies the power that we need It is in that realization that our pride withers. And it's also in that realization that our fear is defeated. It is that understanding that God's power makes the leader that allows us to walk quietly away from leadership when God brings in a new leader. It's what gives us the grace to see that our leadership may actually be more about someone that we lead than it is about us. Elisha would go on to do greater things than Elijah did. And Elijah was okay with that possibility because he knew that nothing in his leadership was really about him. It is God's power that makes the leader. Number two, it is God's power that confirms the leader. So often we want title or position to confirm our status as a leader. We want someone to bestow on us confirmation that we are the leader. Or we want to have a figurehead that we can follow. So we look for a title. I think so often in the church, we we set up a pastor because of a title in a way that God didn't intend a pastor to be set up. And maybe in some earthly, very practical way, we need org charts and titles and all that kind of stuff. But you can have an org chart that goes from here all the way down into our newly remodeled fellowship hall 
But at the end of the day, it is his power that confirms the leader. Maybe you've been in a meeting like this. You have a positional leader, but there's somebody else in the room that people tend to be drawn to for leadership. That's not, that's not just uh, random. People see God's power on somebody. I've been in situations where I've been the leader, but somebody else is clearly leading. And sometimes I need to recognize that and step back and acknowledge God is working through that person right now. And I've been other times where I'm that person in a room and the leader is clearly not leading and, and, you, and people look to you for guidance. We see leadership because we see God's power in a person. When Elisha returned after crossing the Jordan back to Jericho, his leadership was evident not because of the mantle, but because God's power had been displayed on him. People could see God's spirit on him. Paul in the New Testament was similar. He did not have a strong physical presence. He says he was not a great public speaker. He was not a commanding physical presence. But nobody went ahead to tell everybody to make sure and do what Paul said. Paul served and led in his weakness. He knew that. God's weakness, I mean, his weakness is what manifested God's power in him. People saw his weakness and they saw God. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, God's power is perfected in my weakness. It's not my title. It's not my position. It's not um, my uh, uh, command. His power is perfected in my weakness. And then Paul says this, so I will boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. I was reminded years ago, I came to San Francisco with my old church and we came to meet Ryan and he was the new pastor then. This is years before I came here. I had no thought that I would ever be here. We had had a relationship between our two churches and we came to meet the new pastor. And I remember walking in Ryan's office and talking with him just for a few minutes. And this thought in my head, this is God's man for this church. And you know what? Ryan may not always be God's man for this church. But now when he drives me crazy, when I disagree with him, doesn't happen very often, but it happens. And he may not even know that. I think he does. Um, but now I still see God's mantle of leadership on him because I see God's presence and power in his life. That's why I follow him today. I don't follow him because he's my boss and I'm a subordinate and he's the pastor. I wouldn't have come here for a position. That's how it is in our leadership. We see God's presence and power in a person. And we follow them no matter their position on the org chart. My question for you is, are you following people whose leadership is confirmed by God's power in their life? Or do you follow the charming person or the persuasive person or the influential person? Look for evidence of God's power resting on someone. And the reality is it may not look like a stereotype of a leader and you may not even like them very much. And you may not even agree with everything they do as a leader, but if you see God's presence in their life and you see that God has set them up to lead, trust that. God's power, not man, confirms the leader. Number three, it is God's power that protects the leader. Most leaders who understand the high calling of leadership in any realm will approach leadership with some trepidation. I've talked to even fathers as they think about leading and they have that baby and there's an overwhelming sense of responsibility when they have a baby, when they realize what God has called them to. We, we undertake those things with some trepidation. 
Christian leaders, we face an increasingly hostile world. And even if you're just in the safe confines of the church, leading people is hard and it's messy. You will come under attack and people will make fun of your bald spot, whatever that is. But his power protects his leaders. And if we, as we lead in all of the realms that we do, if we forget that his power is what protects us, we will end up compromising rather than facing conflict. We will manipulate in order to make peace. Or we, don't, we won't do what God tells us to do because we want to avoid the potentially negative consequences. We forget that it is not our cunning ways and our leadership style that protects us. It is his power that protects the leader. As a leader, I, I have to admit, I crave people to have my back. I, I, it feels safe to know I've got people with my back. But at the end of the day, I have to realize that at the, ultimately it is his power that is my protection. He can and he will send out the bears to protect his leaders. Sometimes those bears look like you. You're called to protect his leaders. Sometimes those bears are after you. You don't want to be that person. So as we wrap up today, I want you to think about this. There is a reality, no matter what your role or station in life, that you are a leader. Every person in this room, every Christ follower in this room, is called to lead in some way. If you are a parent, if you are a friend, if you are a spouse, if you are a sibling... If you are a neighbor, if you are an employee, if you are a boss, if you are a servant leader volunteering in any capacity in this church, as Christians, we are all called to lead with the influence of Christ, to lead people to Christ. Our church mission statement, leading people to love and live for Jesus. This is who we are as leaders. We can't shirk the mantle of leadership if we say that we follow Christ. And from this story, I think we need to ask ourselves, are we preparing ourselves like Elisha did? Are we following leaders? Are we getting training and mentoring? And then when the leadership puts itself in front of us, are we willing to take up that mantle? Or are we shrinking back passively out of fear or laziness? Are you trusting in his power in you? Are you asking God for it like Elisha did? Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Or are you flailing around in your own power? I think with three teenagers, I feel as ill-equipped to be a parent and leader in my home as I ever have. And I realized in preparing for this sermon, not one time have I cried out to God, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Give me the power I need to lead my family well. Are you content to let his power confirm you? Or do you constantly demand recognition? Will you trust his power to protect you? Or are you spending your time building up walls to protect yourself? This week, I challenge you that every time you face a river that seems impassable in the areas where God has called you to lead, try this. Say it out loud, write it down, pray it to yourself. But just ask this, where is the Lord God of Elijah? It is not you or anything else that will enable you to lead as God has called you to lead. The only thing is the power of God in you. And I promise you, when you ask, where is the Lord God of Elijah? He will show up. Faithful is he who calls you. And he will surely do it. Let's pray.